Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black uh, hardcover Bible under the seat, either in front of you or close by. You can grab that and turn to page 123 in the back. There's an Old Testament numbering and it starts over in the New Testament, so you need to turn to the right side in the back. Page 123. Romans chapter 6. One of most believers, uh, let me just say it this way. Most believers, this is one of their favorite verses in the Bible. This is sweet real estate for those of us who know and understand the gospel and Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's a very real sense in which all of our life, all of our experience, all of our life experience is boiled down basically to an endless series of decisions. Some decisions, most decisions it seems that we make are, are mundane, they're, they're trivial. For example, what we eat, what time we go to bed, what time we get back up, which lane we drive in when we change lanes, where we park our cars, how we greet our friends. I had an awkward moment this morning with a guy in church, which we came up to each other and one of us thought it was a handshake, one of us thought it was a fist bump. And so I grabbed his fist and he punched my handshake. It was, a, it was an awkward moment, um, a trivial decision. I'm not sure which of us were right. What color socks we wear, if we wear socks, I guess we got to ask today. You've already made dozens and dozens of decisions this morning. You've made dozens of decisions since you walked into the church, most of which are just simply trivial You'll make a hundred more before you go to bed tonight. Most of these decisions fall into the category of benign, the trivial, the not that important. But there are other decisions that are not trivial. They have life impact. They set the entire trajectory of, of either the next chapter of your life or the rest of your life or even all of eternity. Where you live, isn't that interesting? I just think about the, the fact of my, I chose to go to school in Los Angeles, chose where to live, chose where to go to church, chose which ministry to be involved with. And there was this really cute girl in that ministry who ended up being my wife, the mother of my three sons. All those little decisions at that time ended up being profound decisions. Where you live, where you move, who you date, who you marry, what occupation you enter in, where, where you choose to do that occupation, what city, what part of the city. Those are all major decisions and they have lots of major consequences like tipping a domino. There's lots of decisions and consequences and effects that pull after that first decision. But there's one decision that presses on our souls. We just sang about it. That tugs on our soul, that, that hounds us and that haunts us all the days of our life. It has ultimate consequences and lands us in an ultimate place. Either eternity with God in heaven or eternity without God in hell. 
Now, let me just be really uh, direct with you this morning. I know that this is a day we have a lot of visitors. In fact, we've invited you on purpose. Let me just give you a little background. We're studying the book of Romans. Uh, We're a verse-by-verse church. We just kind of study one verse or a set of verses. Then the next one, we just keep going through books of the Bible, as is our custom. And we came this week to Romans 6.23, which is almost like if you're driving through the Alps or through the Himalayas and and you're driving through up, up the coast of California and you stop and you see a magnificent scene, you pull the car over and you take pictures. And you want as many people as you can to see that picture. Let me just tell you, you were invited probably this morning. This is not an ambush. Let me just, full disclosure. We didn't bring you here to ambush you. We've been studying through Romans and we came to a place in Romans 6.23, which is a simple explanation of the gospel. A simple explanation of what it means to go to heaven and know Jesus Christ and what it means to suffer eternal loss without him in a Christless hell. And so, we've been talking about this for a few weeks. We said, we're going to come to this point. We're going to pull the car over, take a view of the gospel. And if you know someone, a visitor, a a neighbor, who you want to come and just see this view of the gospel, invite them to come. So that's probably why you're invited. That's why you're here. Please don't anticipate this or see this as some kind of ambush. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 7. Then we'll be in chapter 8. And we'll just keep moving. We just wanted to invite you. Uh, Some of you are invited just to see what we get to see in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. What an amazing text this is. A little explanation of the flow of the book of Romans. Romans was written as an explanation of the good news of God in Jesus Christ. In fact, chapter 1 says, in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 3, that the gospel of God, that means the good news, the good news of God concerns his son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul, who was an apostle of Christ Jesus, he wasn't one of the original 12, but he was one who visited with Jesus, who saw the resurrected Savior, who had 14 years of personal training with him in the wilderness, was ordained by God to go and preach the gospel mostly to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And his greatest anticipation, you see it at the end of this book, was that he longed to get to Rome Rome was the center of the world during this time. He wanted to go to Rome because he knew that to get the gospel in the most influential spot in that world, there was no media, there was no uh, social media, there was no uh, CNN or Fox News or television or newspapers. There was the spreading of the word from the mass of people that had collected there in Rome. That was the fastest way to get the news out. He longed to go to Rome to talk to a church there who was meeting together and explain to them in total what they had heard in part, which was, what does the gospel mean? What's the theology of the gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? What has he done for me? So in the first six chapters of Romans that we've been studying, Paul lays out the fact that, number one, we're all uh, condemned by by sin. We're we're, we're born as rebels to God's cause. Chapter 1 talks about that. We're born with a stiff arm in God's face. We've said over and over, you don't have to teach a two-year-old how to do wrong or how to sin. It comes naturally. And he basically says, everyone is condemned by God from birth. We we stiff arm God's face. We stiff arm his law. We want to do what we want to do. And everyone is under condemnation. But some of the Jews who were listening to Paul say this and write this, he anticipated they would say, well, yeah, that's the Gentiles. Because we as Jews, we have the book of Moses. We have the law of God. We have what we call now the Older Testament, the Old Testament. 
So in chapter 2, he says, not so fast, my friend. You actually are condemned too. In fact, it's a little worse because you actually end up thinking and practicing and doing the same things that the, the Gentiles who you condemn do. So it's double worse for you because you know better and you do it anyway. In chapter 3, the summary of that is to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is under condemnation. Everyone is born in trouble. And the point is that God expects, God anticipates, God alone can demand perfection. It's kind of a strange thing. when When I'm talking about the gospel Uh, to people who haven't heard much about it. One of the things I like to say is, is what the book of Romans teaches is that to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. And that gets everyone's attention. Because instantly you think, I, I'm not perfect. And the reason that God cannot be in the presence of sin, so only perfect people can go there. Now that excludes All of us, that certainly excludes me. Even if today we were to draw a circle around our life and say from this point forward, from this calendar date and the rest of my life, I'm going to never sin. I'm going to never do anything wrong. We still have our past to deal with. But there was one who lived a perfect life. That was Jesus Christ. He never, ever sinned. Never a sinful thought. He was tempted in every way you and I were. In every category. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. He was tempted and yet he didn't sin. He lived a perfect life. Even in the moment of his greatest trial. When he was being crucified and beaten. And abandoned by his friends and men. And the scripture tells us even abandoned by God. What was that about? He took on a sacrifice for us and died in the place of those who have believed. So God says, if you want to come to heaven, you have to be perfect. But your resume doesn't have perfection. Jesus's does. And by faith, chapter 3 of Romans, chapter 4 of Romans illustrates it, chapter 5 explains it. By faith, believers say, I believe, God, that you will give me the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ's perfection. And you say, what about your sin? That's what he took on the cross in our place. That's the good news. That's what Paul's been explaining. Now, here's the catch. People were hearing this for five and a half, six chapters. Now, almost seven chapters in Romans. You can see them reading. and You can feel the tension mounting. Because Paul basically says, all you have to do... To go to heaven is believe that God has done everything for you to go to heaven in the life and death and bodily resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And you can feel the tension with people scratching their heads saying, that just sounds too easy to be be true. That sounds too good to be true. There's no way it can be that simple. Well, in chapter 6, he says, it is that simple, but... If you truly give your life to Jesus, it causes a radical transformation in your life. You change. You, you, you stop sinning in the ways that you had before. And you're aware of, of sin in ways that you've never been before. Paul's been explaining that. And basically, he takes all of what I just told you. And he summarizes it in one verse at the end of chapter 6. It's a transition verse. And he says very simply this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ 
Jesus, our Lord. What I want to do is use this passage to introduce to you the two most important facts in the world. The two most important facts in the world. That's a big claim and I'm not the one who made it. Paul basically is talking about heaven and hell, eternity in one place or the other, life and death. He's the one who says this is about eternity. And there's really no way to put the gravitas, the gravity on this passage than to say what it is. This is a choice. This is the ultimate choice. It's really explaining the two most important facts in the world. Now, the first fact is in that first phrase, the wages of sin is death. First fact is this, death and hell are naturally earned by sin. Death and hell are naturally earned by sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul said. I began my my first real job, I had a lot of little jobs. You know, I was working in uh, cutting grass. I was working um, with a guy who, who was a, had a cleanup crew. I was doing lots of little things. But my first official job that asked for a social security number and, a, and an actual application and began charging me taxes that I remember was McDonald's. We wore these cheesy little hats, these polyester brown suits. And I started out um, doing cooking hamburgers. 12-6, turn lay, Big Macs. It was, it was a great, it was an interesting moment in my life. Let's just say it that way. I remember when, during the interview that uh, the, the manager said, I, I, I like what we've talked about today, uh, Ricky, but we're gonna, we'll decide who we're hiring this afternoon. So I'll give you a call back tonight. That was pretty surprising to me. They were going to decide so quickly who they were going to hire. Well, sure enough, I got a call back that night and was asked to come in the next day and was explained to me that I got a job. I now had a job. I was working for Ronald. I mean, this was big news. Um, and he said, Rick, you will begin your job at the rate, I'll never forget it, of $2.65 an hour. And I was shocked by how much money I was about to make. (laughs) I worked that first week about 20 hours, I remember. And after taxes, I brought home about $40. And I remember telling my dad, I just don't even know how to spend all this money. (laughs) This is is so much cash. What do you do with so much money? And he had some ideas. (laughs) It was real clear. That was my wage. I worked for a wage that I was rewarded for. It was what I got for what I worked. A wage is something you receive when you've earned something. Wages paid in the ancient Near East during Paul's time were very interesting. Most were paid day by day. You see Jesus talking about this uh, in several uh, parables, several, several stories where at the end of the day, the workers were paid. In fact, one of those, the workers were paid equal amounts for working all day in just the last hour. But that's for another sermon. 
They were typically paid every day, but sometimes it was incremental. The point was wages wasn't like what you and I typically do. We think of it once a week or every two weeks. Actually, we probably think about it more often. We're rewarded once every two weeks or once every week. Wages were in the life and mind of these people every single day. You were almost always paid at the end of the day. Paul's using that common notion, that common illustration of what everyone knew that you earn something from what you do. Here he flips that illustration. He, he talks about our work or our occupation as sin, the wages of sin. Sin is not a popular topic to talk about today. Some people don't even believe in sin. There's a whole religious cult, a religious movement that says sin doesn't exist. And I just wonder what those people think of when they stump their toe in the middle of the night. What is sin? Or maybe when they're cut off on the freeway, they say, well, that was just an act of righteousness. It wasn't an act of righteousness. What is sin? Sin describes, uh, the Bible rather describes sin in two ways. And they're important two categories to understand. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Let me explain what that means. Sins of commission are, are ways that you sin... Simply put, by doing or thinking something that is forbidden by God. Forbidden by what the Bible says. This is the ultimate authority on man and his life. And when you do what this this text says, don't do, that's a sin of commission. Do not steal. And you steal something, that's a sin of commission. There's also another category of sins. And that's sins of omission. Whatever you do, do everything to God and his glory. If you don't do everything to God in his glory, if you didn't drink your orange juice this morning or your coffee to God specifically in his glory, that's a sin of omission. It's not doing something that God has told us to do. So you understand that even in in, uh, practical ways. Uh, Son, don't eat your dessert before dinner. One of our elders may do that a lot at our elders' um, dinners. Just, I mean, if his name was Richard Oaks, I I wouldn't say that out loud. But he's almost always eating dessert before dinner. Richard, are you here? I was hoping you were downstairs with the kids during that. But let's say that you tell your sons or daughters, don't eat dessert before dinner. And they do that. That's a sin of commission. But what if you tell them, clean up your room and they don't do it? That's a sin of omission. They've omitted doing what they were supposed to do. Sin is our life's work. We are doing things that we're not supposed to do and we're not doing things that we should be doing all the time. That's like working in front of God. That's our work, sin after sin after sin. And we store up these sins and God gives us the wages of our sin. And the wages, this text tells us, is death. Just like wages were paid as a present reality and also an expectation that extended into the future in in Paul's day, so are wages in this verse. This has an immediate context and an eternal futuristic context. Let me explain what I mean by that. It says the wages of sin is death. Now everyone is going to die. I, I looked it up worldwide. The, the death rate is now consistently at 100%. Everyone dies. 
No one can avoid it. Even though we spend a lot of time trying to, to avoid it, no one can avoid the fact that one day all of us will die. Every man, every woman, no matter how much money you make, no matter how many contracts you have with how many hospitals and how many doctors you know, you and I will all one day die. That's the future. We're also dying day by day. It's like the, the man who came out when the baby was born, the doctor, and said to the, the parents who were so excited to see their fresh little bundle of joy and said, I'm so sorry. He got somber. There's nothing I can do. They said, what do you mean? I don't know, 50, 60, 70, maybe 90 years, but your baby's dying. It's true. The fuse is lit for all of us. But death also includes in life things like suffering and discomfort, pain, sorrow, But ultimately in this passage, it has a futuristic idea of death being separation. Separation from God. If you really think about it, death is merely separation. It separates that person who's died from life. And eternally, in a spiritual sense, death separates us from God. You know, God is always in the face of death. I know God is outside of time, but but humor me for a moment. Worldwide, three people die every single second. Now, just do the math on that. I mean, just this is God and His experience with death: three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-one, twenty-four, twenty-seven, thirty. 33, you see how fast that adds up? 180 people every minute, 11,000 every hour. If the Bible is right about what happens to us after death, it means, get this, more than a quarter million people, more than 250,000 people every day meet God and enter into heaven or hell. God is always familiar with death. Every three seconds, he's looking at a group of people who face eternity. Judgment is certain. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 says, For God will bring every act to judgment, whether it is hidden or whether it is good or evil. One day the books will be opened. We will all stand before the great God and judge the King, the Lord Jesus, and give an account for whether or not we received his son or whether or not we are looking at our own life and life's resume as a way to go to heaven. Death here really talks about hell. Now, this is scary stuff. This is not an ambush. Let me just tell you what the Bible says. It describes hell as a fiery place of torment where the worm never dies and the fire is not extinguished in Mark 9, 44. In Matthew 18, 8, it's an everlasting fire. In Luke three seventeen, it's an unquenchable fire. Luke 16, 4, it's a flame. Jude 7, it's an eternal fire. Revelation 14 and 20 and 21 describe it as fire and brimstone. And Matthew 13, 42 and 50 say it's a furnace of fire. In Dante's Inferno that most of us read in high school, the last line of the inscription over the gate of hell reads this. All hope abandon ye who enter into here. 
you know that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other topic? William Nichols, a great Puritan, said, The heat of the fire of everlasting torment will torment them. The stench of the brimstone will offend their senses, while the blackness of darkness will horrify them. He goes on to say, For the damned who inhabit that place of eternal wrath, hell is simply this. It's truth learned too late. Christopher Love, another Puritan, said, Hell is a place of torment ordained by God for devil, the devil and reprobate sinners, wherein by his justice he confines them to everlasting punishment, tormenting them in body and soul, being deprived of God's favor, objects of his wrath under which they must lie unto all eternity. John Chrysostom said the pains of hell are not the greatest part of hell. The loss of heaven is the worst part of hell. John Calvin said, there can be no doubt but that by such expressions about hell, the Holy Spirit intended to confound all our faculties with horror. In other words, the Bible describes the horrific nature and eternal um, time frame of hell to, to scare us. This scares me to even read and think about. There are two serious errors when we talk about hell. First is neglecting it. To just never think about it. I think the devil would love for us to never think about hell. It would serve his purposes really, really well. Because we wouldn't be frightened. We wouldn't be thinking about an escape. Another is to minimize it. Well, it doesn't really exist. It's not as bad as it seems. I've heard people say, I can't wait to go to hell because that's going to be where all my friends are. Minimize the nature of hell and you'll have people believing that hell is remedial. Kind of purgatory where there's a second chance provided after death. And minimize it and you'll have people thinking that hell is a place to go be with their friends. Minimize hell and you'll make people think that there's plenty of time to get right with God. That someday is their day. Another old preacher used to say, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's. What happens though? I mean, think about it. Hell is full of everything we dread. Physical pain, loneliness, darkness, which accentuates the fear, regret, the absence of another chance. The knowledge that heaven is real and and you're not there. Why do people not deal with this? The Bible actually answers that question. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the text says, Because the sentence against an evil deed, the judgment against an evil deed, is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. What he's saying is because God doesn't judge today, because there's not the wrath of God today, because he's merciful and gracious and patient and gives us multiple opportunities to respond to him in this life, people think, I can do it tomorrow. I'll do it later. Or even worse, I don't even know if that really exists. In the book of 2 Peter, Peter makes an interesting point. He says, uh, people devolve to uh, Unitarianism. Uh, and what, what that means, they just think, ah, it's, 
It's just been going like this forever. Tomorrow's going to be like today, and next week will be like last week, and so God's not really coming. God's not coming in judgment. It's just going to be as it always has been, so I'm not going to think about it. If hell frightens you as it does me, if hell is not a place you want to end up or go, we've come to the right verse. Death and hell are naturally earned by sin. Everyone is bound there unless you come to the second most important fact in the world, Number two, life and heaven are graciously given in Jesus. Life and heaven are graciously given in Jesus. For the wages of sin is death. And then there's the word but. Now, I I don't want to say too much about this. But when you see the word but in the Bible, it is one of the most important words in the English language codified in the pages of scripture. Hang on a second, it says. Wages of sin is death, but, hang on, but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I'm going to talk about this passage for a minute, but I could just close and say amen. I don't know how much clearer you get. If you're storing up wrath, the wrath of God by sin, and God will pay you for that one day with death, and death means hell without him forever. And the opposite side of that, the other fact is, but the free gift... Of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is good news indeed. Paul turns from death to life, from heaven to hell, from sin to Jesus. Now there's a central contrast in this verse. It's between wages and a free gift. Back to McDonald's. I remember working long, hard hours at $2.65 an hour back in 1978. And I, I, I mean, I worked hard for those wages. There was one time that a man came to me utterly unexpected. And I, I don't want to encourage any of you collegians that if this happens to you, praise God. It blew me away. He came to me long after I graduated seminary. And he just said, he said, hey, do you have... Did you take out a college loan? I said, well, yeah. It wasn't a big loan, but he said, how much was it? Honestly, I think it was about $10,000. And he said, I'd like to pay that for you. And I argued with him. No, I didn't argue with him. I said, what? Why? 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 He says, you know, I just, I just want to pay that off for you. And I remember thinking, but I've not done anything to do that. We, we don't talk often. Why, why, why would you want to do that? He says, I just want to give you this gift. And it didn't make sense to me. I, I was, but, but there are other people. Why, it, 
And it came to, why me? Why would you do this? This is so nice. This is so unbelievably kind. That was just a college bill. This free gift, look at what it says, is eternal life. The best news I can provide for you today is that God stands at the ready. Blows me away. To give you, to give you eternal life. You say, what can I do for it? You can't. It's worse than you think. Not only can you not do anything to get it, you've done everything to be repulsed by it. We were born as sinners. Our wages always stored up is is sin that should be judged by God's wrath. And God says, I want to give you something. Salvation is a free gift. For God so loved the world that he gave this free gift. But this free gift wasn't a loan payoff. This free gift wasn't a Christmas present. This free gift had flesh and blood, had a heartbeat, had a pulse. This free gift, look at, for God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. That's eternal life. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. That means go to hell. But have, here's our word again, eternal life. Now, I hope that you just say, that's just, come on. It's free. It's eternal life. It's heaven, not hell. And all I have to do is believe that to get it. Yes. That's all. Even the belief that you do, God opens your eyes to. We can't do anything to get it or earn it. The only thing we can store up and earn is the wages of sin. Eternal life is life that knows meaning and significance. It knows meaning and significance in this world and it also is lived forever with Christ because of Christ, because he's the one who gives us meaning and significance. Look at the last part of this verse. Eternal life comes very specific language through Christ Jesus, our Lord Christ. That's the Messiah. That takes everything in the Old Testament and says all that the Old Testament anticipated for God taking care of the final sacrifice for sins and the final imputation or declaration of righteousness came in this person. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Then I love it. It says Christ Jesus. You know why it says Jesus? This is the man who grew up in Nazareth. This is that guy from Galilee. He's a man. He's a human. Fully God, yes, but truly human. Christ, Jesus, the anointed one from Galilee. Jesus from Nazareth. And then there's a word you cannot miss. It's a pro, uh, an adjective and, and, a, and, a, and a, a noun. Our Lord, this is important. This is the relationship that those who believe in Jesus, who receive this gift, who receive eternal life, the relationship they now have with Jesus is not just as the Savior, but it's as Lord. 
In the book of Acts, it's a, it's a book that, that outlines um, the, the beginning of the church uh, from Jerusalem all throughout uh, Asia Minor and then ultimately to, the, to the, all parts of the planet. When it records the apostles going around telling people how they can be forgiven of sins, how they can believe the gospel, get this, 92 times they call Jesus Lord and they call him Savior twice. We receive Jesus as Lord and he becomes our Savior. We don't receive him as Savior and hopefully later we'll make him Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord. You don't make a president a president or a king a king. That's who they are. We submit to Jesus as Lord. Here's the good thing. His burden is easy and light. He's not an overlord who grotesquely treats his servants. He has our good in mind when he wants to extract his glory from us. He's a kind Lord. He's a gentle Lord. Now, can I take a footnote from this? You gotta be careful because he's our Lord, he's our master, he cares for us like no other Lord has ever cared for any other servant or slave. But when we submit to him as Lord, it doesn't mean that all of life's problems dissolve. Doesn't mean every bill is paid off. Doesn't mean everything comes into, uh, into alignment. Doesn't mean you get that girl that you really like or that guy you really want. Doesn't, doesn't mean that at all. What it means is no matter what life throws at you, you have a Lord who understands, cares, has endured far worse than us and will walk with us through those valleys. And sometimes, I, wanna, I gotta tell you this, sometimes the process of becoming holy God uses and allows us so many trials and troubles in this life so that our grip is not on this world, but we reach for the next. It's inexplicable. Unbelievable. It's a free gift that he gives us if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't old school. This isn't fantasy. This isn't, I know it's a minority opinion and it's going to get worse. The Bible tells us that the closer we get to his return, the return of Jesus, who is coming back in his body to rule and reign and judge the planet, the closer we get to that, the more people will say, where is he coming? The more people will move from bad to worse. Evil men will move from bad to worse. The world will get worse, not better. This is moving, swimming upstream. This is, this is believing counterintuitively than everyone else around us. My dad was a veteran of Vietnam. He was shot in the leg at one point. And he used to repeat the adage that ever you've heard before. There's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. challenge is that all of us live in a foxhole. All of us live with the impending knocking on the door of death. Do, do we understand the danger that we're in? And for those of us who know Christ, do you revel in the fact that he has taken our penalty? He's taken the curse away. He has already been judged for us and instead of us and provided for us perfection and righteousness so that when God looks at us, we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus, by his forgiveness, by his lived and purchased righteousness. 
Do, do you just stop and say, take a deep breath of that air and say, wow, just wow. It is a free gift. You cannot be good enough. No one's good enough. No one is good enough to save themselves. It's a gift. Best way to break down understanding of the gospels into three components. It's a set of facts you believe. Who Jesus was, what he did, factually. Secondly, what those facts meant. What did his death mean? What did his resurrection mean? What did those mean? It meant that God was doing something in Christ at the cross with no grandstands, nobody riding around to record what was happening and put it in the paper the next day. He was doing something miraculous and amazing. It's facts, it's theology about those facts, and then it's a response. And you know what the response is? You repent of your sins. You turn from your sins and you turn to Christ. What kind of fool would say no to that? I keep coming back to this in my own thinking. What kind of fool would say, no, I I don't want forgiveness. I don't want to go to heaven. I'd rather go to hell. I would rather that my, my whole life be spent in this life. Randy Alcorn says this, that for an unbeliever, this life is as close as they will ever get to heaven. And for a believer, this life is as close as they will ever get to hell. Who would say no to heaven and yes to your life? How, honestly, can we just talk for a second? How's that worked out for you? Peace, assurance, purpose, meaning, true friendships, forgiveness between people that you know and love. Without Christ, those are constantly outside our grasp. It's not an ambush if you're visiting with us. It's not an ambush if you've been coming. We're just in the next verse. And you know what the next verse tells us? God gives the free gift of salvation to those who believe. Do you believe? Will you believe? Let me beg you. Don't, don't put this off till tomorrow next week. Tomorrow is truly the devil's day. Why not trust what God has done for you and given you in Christ. Why, why not? What is so important that you would say, I would give the whole world in exchange for my soul? Isn't your soul and isn't eternity so precious, so important, so long lasting that there's nothing you wouldn't sacrifice for it? You say, well, hang on, if, if I do that, if I submit to my life to Christ as Lord and then, then he does what he wants to do in my life and I don't get to do anything, and what a bummer that's going to be. Can I just tell you, as someone who's been a Christian for north of three decades, it is so happy to be in Jesus. It's just sweet. The absence of guilt and when guilt comes to have it dealt with. The presence of sin, but to know it's dealt with. The opportunity to speak to the creator of your, of your entire life and existence. To have friends that are friends because you love Christ and they make you grow and they, they stretch you. They're different than you are and you're different than they are. And God says, I'm going to put you together and make you more like Jesus. What will you do? with these two most important facts in the world. If death and life are naturally earned by sin, that's all of us, 
then you have a certain, the book of Hebrews tells us, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. I don't want you to do that. God's not willing that anyone perish, but that you would come to repentance. But that other great fact, life in heaven are graciously given in Jesus. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is a person. The good news of, of God, Romans 1.1, 1, 1, concerns his son, Romans 1.3. It's about him. It's not getting your life right. It's not stopping stuff and starting stuff. It's believing that he, he was, he is, he provides the answer to your soul's greatest lines. Like I said, it's not an ambush. We're just in the next verse and it's about the gospel. There's lots more in the coming chapters about that as well. But if you come today, just push pause on your heart and life and say, where am I with the Lord? Where am I with the Lord? And, and I'm, 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 full disclosure, I'm intending to scare you right now. Ready? This is a full frightening statement. If you were to die today, are you ready to say to the Lord Jesus that you rejected his free gift and offer of eternal life? Or do you want to say hello to your Lord and hear him say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Can I ask you to bow your heads? Ask the band if they would to come up and we're going to sing an appropriate response to this passage. With your heads bowed just for a second, this is not going to be a spooky moment. I just want to ask you, would you consider your eternal destination based on what you've done with the person of Christ? After the song, to my right, to your left, uh, Mike and Christy Walji will be over there. We'll have a, we have a prayer room there. We would love to talk to you about this. Please, please, I'm begging you, please don't let this day or moment pass by without knowing with full assurance that Christ is your Lord and therefore your Savior. Father, move on the hearts of those who have resisted you And those of us who have submitted to you, Lord, encourage our hearts with a greater sense of the free gift of salvation because of your son, in your son, due to your son. Make this a day that touches eternity. Again, after this final song, if you want to make your way up, we would love to talk to you about your heart and life.